You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Melissa Hurst. On May 25th, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man in Minneapolis, was murdered. And in the intervening weeks, four police officers have been charged for their involvement. Since then, the entire country, people in all 50 states, have continuously flowed into the streets in protest. They've demanded justice, not only for Floyd, but for Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, and other victims of police violence and the deep entrenched racism that exists at every level of American society. In this moment, when it seems as though so many people are taking up a cause that others have been laboring over for lifetimes, we turn to April Alexander, a professor of forensic psychology and member of Black Lives Matter 5280 for a deeper dive into what she hopes will be a historic turning point, the psychology of protest, and what true reform might look like. Thank you for coming on today. And thanks for having me back, Alyssa. So in a recent interview, I believe it was with CBS4, you spoke about how with the number of people coming out to protest, this looks like a real turning point to you. So I'm curious, first of all, what you mean by turning point and what about this moment makes you think that? Yeah, so we've had the issue of police-related violence and police-related killings uh, for a while now. Um, So I was surprised that we had such a big turnout here in Denver, Colorado, uh, with this most recent killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, A lot that I've been communicating and also wondering about is just a few months ago, uh, we had the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora uh, by police. Um, I went to the vigil. Uh, I sat with his mother at that vigil. Um, And that vigil had a few dozen people. Um, And so here we are a few months later, and we have over 10,000 people at the Capitol um, because of these most recent killings. And there was a press conference for the uh, police accountability bill. And Elijah McClain's mom was there. And she was actually very transparent to the audience in saying, where were you a few months ago when my son died? Uh, You all weren't here then. So uh, again, I think it's a turning point in that we had additional video evidence and people saw that evidence and it became real to them. And now I think they're motivated to get out and bring awareness to this issue. Many are calling these peaceful protests and others are dismissing them as riots and looting. So I'm curious from your point of view, what does it mean to protest peacefully? And how would you characterize what we're seeing not only in Colorado, but around the country and around the world right now? Yeah, this is a very interesting topic that I've been talking to the media a lot about language. Um, And so the first day of the protest where I attended, there was a lot of language saying that the protest was violent. I didn't see violence. Uh, I saw property destruction, yes. I saw spray painting, yes. Um, But that's not violent behavior. Um, It's destructive, it's aggressive. And I think we need to recognize that people are mourning at this time. Um, People are wanting to hear their voices heard. Um, So through these protests, through these rallies, people are just trying to be heard that we've done peaceful protests before. Uh, Again, this issue isn't new. Uh, We we marched for Philando Castile, we marched for Trayvon Martin and many others. Um, We uh, had Colin Kaepernick who engaged in peaceful, quiet protesting by taking a knee. And so I think what we're seeing is people are wanting to be heard and in order to be heard, sometimes you have to make a little noise and that's the difference. Uh, We don't call uh, people destroying their city when they win a bowl game uh, a a riot. 
Uh, we don't label that as a riot when that's completely unnecessary. Um, so I think we just need to center our language around this uh, of thinking that one, people want to be heard and two, this is people's expression of grief and pain. So going back to the word riot, it's been used here both in a positive and a negative way. Um, some have used it to diminish the movement, as you've said, um, while others have invoked the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and said what he said, which is riot is the language of the unheard. And that's sort of what you just spoke to. I'm curious what you think he meant by that. His words are exactly what he meant. Uh, it's the language of the unheard that we've had these injustices for so long um, and we're not seeing change. Where has the change come? Uh, it hasn't. Um, even after Martin Luther King's assassination, we rioted, people rioted. Um, and, and they did that for a while, they did destroy property. And what came of that? We had the Civil Rights Act just a few weeks later. People are searching for an answer, they're searching for accountability at this time. Um, and so that's what we wanna see. People here in Denver have asked, when is it going to end? When are these protests gonna stop? And I said, once we get a response, once we see accountability. So when we saw people gather against COVID-19 restrictions, news organizations, the president, he called those protests. Now we're seeing these movements around George Floyd being called riots. So how is language really shaping the conversation? How is it being used strategically? And, and what effect does that have on the psychology of either the protesters or the people out reading the media, watching the news? Uh, so a few weeks ago, we had people at the Capitol who were fully armed. A lot of their signs said, uh, we want the right to have our barbershops back, our restaurants back. And I know why. Uh, again, we have people who are facing unemployment at this time. Uh, but we weren't getting the same response as we're getting to the protesters now, uh, that we didn't have armed military people uh, coming to the Capitol when uh, people were responding to the Capitol with arms. And so just a few weeks later, we have people who are peacefully protesting, chanting, singing, um, and we have armed uh, guards there. Uh, we have uh, gas being thrown. So uh, when we're talking about language, we need to recognize that sometimes our language is biased. And it's not just implicit bias, it's explicit that some of this language is done deliberately. And so I think it does divide us. We recognize that that language is being used differently from one group to another. Um, so we see that and we see, again, those differences, those inequalities as being displayed once again. So you teach a forensic psychology class on campus. And in previous interviews, you've mentioned that some of the topics you cover include the history of the criminal justice system, police culture, police brutality, and how this has operated throughout time. You know, what happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, just to name a few, this is not new. So can you share a little bit about that history and that background that is informing this moment? I often challenge my students on what's the purpose of the criminal justice system? Uh, again, is it vengeance? Is it rehabilitation? Uh, what do we think the purpose is? And then are we fulfilling that purpose? And so I think that history is really rich in talking to our students about it uh, because one, we don't get that adequate history in our education. We don't talk about these disparities. Uh, why is it that some people do end up in the position that they're in versus us in the chair here at DU? Um, you know, even now with the recent protest, I think about this isn't new. One, we've had people telling us that police brutality has been happening. We've had that since the beginning of policing. Um, and then if you want to get to more recent history, we had it with Rodney King. So for people to say that this is new and how are people acting out this way, we, we just saw it. That was in my lifetime. In the beginning of policing kind of in our country was with slavery, that that was their uh, role as catching slaves. Uh, who were running away. 
And so the beginning of police relations started poorly uh, because that was the foundation of it. And then again, a lot of this isn't new. If we go across time, we've had instances of police brutality. So this distrust of police is valid. Uh, we've had these stories here throughout our history. And again, uh, not just with the criminal justice system, I'm challenging people to think of what is the purpose of all our systems? Uh, what is the purpose of the educational system? What is the purpose of policing uh, right now? Uh, to kind of examine where we can uh, possibly course correct in terms of police and community relations. So given that history and, and what's happening now, what's different now? What is driving this huge turnout against this and, and what has brought new attention to this issue? I think for myself in the community, we're all looking for accountability. Um, so for the police officer who murdered George Floyd, he actually had 17 prior complaints against him. Some included excessive force, 17. Um, so, you know, I wondered to myself, am I allowed to engage in 17 assaults and would I be free? No, probably not. So what we're just simply asking for is accountability for that. What would have happened if we intervened earlier with that officer or fired him? Uh, George Floyd would still be with us. Um, so I think the public is uh, expecting the same degree of accountability for police uh, that we're expected to uphold. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of core issue of what we're asking for through protests. We're asking for accountability. Mm -hmm. Even when um, police officers are um, charged uh, for these murders um, or for excessive force, they're often acquitted. Um, if they're fired, they often move to another jurisdiction and have a job. Um, uh, when I was at the press conference for the police accountability bill, uh, the family of uh, Michael Marshall was there uh, and they spoke. Uh, Michael Marshall, uh, again, was injured and died in police custody. Uh, and what his family members uh, were speaking to is those police officers are still employed. Where is the accountability for that family for that loss? So as you mentioned, protesting is not new. So how is this movement building on the things that were learned from those different movements and the policies that were in place from those different movements, if policies were put in place? That's some of the problems that we're facing now, uh, that a lot of new policy has not been put in place or is not consistently used. Um, so for some of the police-involved murders of just a few years ago, we started using body cams. Uh, that President Obama even recommended that, increased funding for that. Uh, but those aren't consistently being used. Um, in the case of Elijah McClain, they were turned off. Um, so again, as we're looking for accountability, we're going to see or hopefully see new legislation to correct some of this. Um, so the police accountability bill that was introduced uh, does talk about body camera use. Uh, it does talk about qualified immunity, which currently uh, alleviates police officers from being prosecuted. Um, so I think right now everybody's expecting for some change uh, in order to facilitate that accountability through legislation. Right. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. So, so in response to these protests and a lot of public pressure, um, we are seeing these policy proposals, a lot of which you just mentioned, at the community level, at the state level, at the national level even. So here in Colorado, as you mentioned, we have the police accountability bill, and that would do things like ban chokeholds, increase use of force reporting, and some in Minneapolis are even looking at avenues to defund the police. So do you think that these actions and others like them would bring about genuine reform? I think they will. Um, again, we have to talk about the limitations. We just don't know yet uh, because these policies haven't been introduced or enforced um, in the past. 
but I do think it will bring some reform in terms of, again, seeking accountability. Some of these policies are recommended in order to also keep officers safe. Uh, the reason uh, that body cams were uh, endorsed by some police um, jurisdictions was because it would keep the officers safe from complaints too, that if something went wrong on the person that they were arresting, if it was true uh, on the police officer's behalf, we would have video. Um, so thinking about how do we create a space where everybody is safe and secure, including our police. Are there any particular aspects of either Colorado's accountability bill or others that you've seen that you think might be particularly meaningful and particularly impactful? Um, some of the information that I've seen so far is one, collecting data on demographics. Um, so we already know that there's disproportionate minority contact in the criminal justice system, uh, that uh, minorities at every stage in the criminal justice system are disproportionately targeted. That's from police stops to arrests. Uh, to prosecutions, convictions, et cetera. Um, and so uh, the bill is proposing, let's collect uh, some more demographic data to uh, ensure we're not seeing bias um, in what's going on in policing. Um, that's also including uh, veteran status, uh, if, if we know that a person has a mental health history. Um, and so I think that's some valuable data to kind of analyze in the future going forward to look at these disparities. Again, uh, more talk about body cam and kind of use of that, that I hope that we can become a little bit more consistent with those policies across jurisdictions. Um, and that's what this bill is looking for. And again, I think what the community is really looking for is this elimination of qualified immunity. Realistically, are some of these things genuinely possible? Are some of these bills something that you really think that we'll see in the future? Um, I do think there's going to be modifications in place. Uh, I listened to some of the testimony uh, just to get a sense of where people are siding on this. And one sheriff said, wait, we have to collect this demographic data. That's, that's going to be a lot and hard. He actually brought up the example of, okay, if I um, am helping somebody change their flat tire, do I really need to ask about sexual orientation, veteran status, and this and that? And I said, fair. Uh, that, that might be uh, extra work and extra burden on them. So I, I think we will see this bill come through, but there's going to be modifications that there has to be uh, some middle ground to um, be realistic for all people who are involved. So we're also seeing calls here in Colorado and elsewhere to alter the relationship between the police and schools. Two members of the Denver School Board just introduced a resolution to remove officers from middle schools and high schools by 2021, I believe. Um, so why is the education system a key area for intervention here? Uh, one of the things I teach about and also uh, research is the school to prison pipeline. Uh, so policies that are in place that are pushing our kids out of schools and into the juvenile justice and later criminal justice system. These policies include zero intolerance policies, uh, dress code violations. Um, we just recently passed the Crown Act here in Colorado that we were kicking kids out of school and criminalizing kids in schools uh, for wearing their hair in braids and locks. Uh, so we just passed that to end hair discrimination. Um, so when we're thinking about the implementation of school resource officers in schools, um, our worry is that they are criminalizing our students, particularly our students of color and LGBTQ students. So the question that's coming up right now is, uh, what is the uh, duty of these school resource officers? Uh, this is where the confusions lie, that a lot of the research says that sometimes their roles aren't clearly defined. Uh, they were intended to be a school resource. Uh, so help aid and support our students who are struggling and things like that. But what we're seeing is that they're serving more as police officers. So enforcing uh, kind of rules when a teacher 
is experiencing a student with behavioral problems, sending them out to that officer. And so we just need to be clear about, again, what is their role? And then what we're finding is that school resource officers, the presence has not helped to reduce uh, kind of safety concerns. People have brought up after school shootings. They say, oh, we need to increase school resource officers. And if we look at the school shootings that have happened across the country, a lot of those schools actually did have school resource officers on duty. And so we just need to be careful and examine that um, and think about what is it that we actually need in order to keep our students safe and provide uh, support to our students. It's mental health practitioners, it's social workers, it's school nurses. Um, so the ACLU has this movement called Counselors Not Cops. Um, and they have a really nice report on that as well that just details there's I want to say 40 million schools that just don't have nurses, mental health practitioners, social workers in place to help the needs of our students. Uh, so, you know, uh, the kid who is getting bullied, uh, can we get them the supports that they need so they're not engaging in um, some risky behaviors? And so what we're seeing uh, with this proposed defunding of school resource officers is just that, that we want to stop criminalizing our students. And hopefully what I hope see tacked onto that is the push for actual supports. Can you elaborate a little bit on what the school-to-prison pipeline looks like? Yeah, so uh, what we often see is, again, um, a kid might be having some behavioral problems early in their life. Um, And again, that could be due to a number of different issues, often trauma. Um, And when a kid is experiencing trauma, they might engage in some behaviors like acting out. Uh, So it could be talking back to the teacher or being fussy with their peers. And so what happens then? Uh, They get sent to detention. Uh, They might get suspended for a couple days. Uh, They might be expelled or put in an alternative school. And what is that doing? That's displacing them from their schools. That's displacing them from their communities. And then what happens? Well, now they're kind of criminalized or they're engaging in negative behaviors. They're um, seeking out peers who are not uh, as pro-social and supportive. And then what do we see? We see incarceration. So recognizing that this is a whole pipeline of uh, behaviors that um, are not occurring just in a vacuum, but have have some backing to them. Uh, So one of the things that I talk a lot about with teachers is uh, trauma-informed care. Uh, That some of our schools are saying, uh, let's do more trauma-informed schooling for our kids. That uh, again, some of these kids who have the behavior problems uh, have so many other struggles in their lives. they have food insecurity. Uh, they might come from abusive households. They might be in a, uh, a neighborhood that has gang members in it. Uh, again, are we providing that uh, kiddo with resources uh, to help buffer uh, all of these different factors that are going on in their lives? How can we intervene early? How can we push teachers to identify some of these uh, traits and intervene early and get them the support that they need to keep them in school and out of the criminal justice system? So you've mentioned a lot of different a lot of different things that are needed in response to these killings and in response to the protests. Um, Is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you would really like to see and that is needed for moving forward? Again, I think it's finding um, how can we best support our communities? Uh, How are we going to tackle the problem of racism in our uh, communities? Um, And and that's what we're seeing now is uh, kind of the ripple effects of these uh, police-related shootings to communities of color and to broader society. How do we address some of these underlying issues that are contributing to disparities in racism? So are we, uh, again, improving our school system? Are we improving resources uh, for our families in terms of housing, in terms of food? A lot of what I want in my career now is the push for prevention. We spend a lot of time putting money into intervention. And what I mean by that is um, 
counseling. We spend a lot of time there. And again, that's helpful. That's why I'm here. But that also means we're putting a lot of money into prisons, uh, into corrections, all on the back end. And I want people to think, what would a world look like if we did work on the front end? What if we provided people with resources? What if we provided more money into education? What if we provided more money into, again, housing and community first? We can alleviate the need for jails and prisons. And so uh, I want us to be thinking from a prevention lens as well, is that a lot of these societal problems can be prevented. So for a final question, I'd I'd like to ask you a little bit about your personal experience. This moment is really sitting at the intersection of both your activism and your research areas. So what has that been like for you? I think for me and even my students in this moment, uh, both with COVID hitting uh, and with this conversation about um, police-involved shootings, it's made our research more real. It's made our work more real. Um, that I've lectured on this stuff before, uh, but to be in it in the moment and have context, uh, I think is hitting home for myself and others. Uh, again, COVID exacerbated the, current, the problems that were already there. Um, the police involved shootings and everything that's going on is highlighting the problems that were already there. And so I've been working and doing this work to uh, highlight those problems and in my own ways, correct those problems. Um, so I, I think in this moment, I'm just wrestling with all that, that um, this is where academics can come in um, and have some great power and change. How do we influence our systems? I, I think I've written to a few people that right now I've just said, all hands on deck. Uh, this is a time where we can have a great influence, uh, use our research for the public good. Um, and I think that's what's been highlighted to me uh, more now than ever. To hear more on this topic from April Alexander, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. James Swearingen arranged our theme music. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. Lauren Fultenberg and Nicole Militello contributed research for today's episode. And I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer, today's sound engineer, and host. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.